we'll be looking at the what, the who and the why of faith, i.e. what actually is it, who should it be in and why is it important, why do we need to have it. So we'll start off with what is faith? Is it blind? Is it devoid of any evidence? Is it a cop-out? Is it contrary to the evidence? Is it something that we should be abandoning in our modern, sophisticated, scientific age? Is it the sort of thing that we believe that gullible's been removed from the dictionary? No. We're not just to believe everything that we hear. We're not to believe everything, even if it's completely irrational and makes no sense whatsoever. That's not biblical faith and that's not what God's calling us to. That's not what the Bible calls loving God with our minds. Wayne Goodrum in his volume Systematic Theology on Faith suggests a better word to describe faith and one that resonates well with our Western understanding of of words is the word trust. It's something that we use all the time and these words can often be used interchangeably. Think about what life would be like, think about the world would be like if we weren't able to trust anyone or anything and just substitute that word for faith. What would it be like if we didn't have faith? If we couldn't have faith, if we couldn't have trust, it would be crazy, it would be broken. Try and imagine a world where we couldn't trust anyone. There'd be no relationships. We couldn't take anyone at their word. We couldn't trust anything. Will water come out of the tap? Will the light turn on when I flick the switch? Quite appropriate for this morning. Will a chair break when I try and sit on it? If we're questioning all these things and saying, what's going to happen? We'll just end up paranoid. In our renovated delight of a home, some of these things became true. You turn the tap and, well, it didn't come out. It required a bit of investigation. You flick the light switch and it didn't turn on. But after doing a, a whole bunch of repairs and getting these fixed up, with a certain degree of trust, provide the electricity company are working on the light, or on the power, provide the water company hasn't cut off the water. You can trust these things that you turn it on and you'll get water, you turn it on and you'll get light or power or whatever it may be. Faith is something that we use all the time without really realising it. And likely or not, if we didn't have it, if we couldn't have it, we'd lead to a world that was just insane. It would be crazy. Now, we have faith in all sorts of things. Think about it, we have faith in our legal system and due process, particularly in Australia, mostly it works fairly well. We have, we're often told to have faith in ourselves, believe in yourself, trust in yourself. We have faith in our politicians, or not. We need to pray for them. But what's biblical faith? Biblical faith is really the faith that this anti-faith brigade targets and says, this is a bad thing, this is a terrible thing, this is blind. Now, one area that that attack it, one area that that make a big case about it is the resurrection. And say, you've got blind faith that this person rose from the dead. People don't rise from the dead. And granted, they generally don't. Do you realise that's not a modern discovery? People have known for a long time people don't just come alive from the dead. It's not something we figured out in the 21st century. But then you need to look at the evidence that goes along with it. What happened? What records do we have? Well, we see 600 or more witnesses. We see a period of 40-odd days where Jesus appeared to these witnesses as someone that has risen from the dead. 
We see an empty tomb, so we have no body, no body to show for it. If, if the religious leaders really believed that Jesus was just stolen, don't you think they'd turn Jerusalem up and down and try and find that body and prove that he was really dead? We have the soldiers themselves, the hostile witnesses that are running scared when they've seen these angels. And we have all the disciples that are willing to be martyred. They die going to their death, gruesome deaths, proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, that it was a real thing. And it's not just in a secret corner, one person and some sort of revelation or something like that. There's heaps of people over a long period of time and all this evidence that gives us the only reasonable explanation that Jesus did rise from the dead. That we can have faith on it and it's not crazy faith, it's not blind faith, it's not contrary to all the evidence, it's not the sort of thing that gets us admitted to an asylum. It's considering the evidence, it's believing what God has done. Now from the passages that we've uh, had read to us before, we see three key ingredients to what makes up faith. What is faith? And these ingredients build on each other. We have one, then another one, then another one. These ingredients I'd like to suggest are knowledge, agreement and then a personal trust in those things. After all, we can't agree with something that we know nothing about. And how can we trust something that we even haven't heard about or we don't know whether it's true? So we need that knowledge to start off with. Faith can't exist in a vacuum. It actually needs to be in something We can't simply say, I have faith. What do you have faith in? It needs to actually be in something. It needs to have an object. Our passage in in 1 John 5 gives us a number of things that we can have faith in. In verse 1 it talks about Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. In verse 5 it talks about Jesus as the Son of God. And in verse 11 and 12 it talks about Jesus being the only way that we can be saved. The only way that we can receive God's eternal life. Now, these things are all well and good and we know something about it, but it's more than just knowledge. After all, in James, James tells us that the demons know that there is one God and they tremble in that knowledge. Now, the Bible doesn't hold the demons up as these faithful people that we should be uh, learning from and getting heaps from. They're not an incredibly faithful bunch, but they do have the knowledge. It's the first step. Well, we need to build on that knowledge, actually agreeing with the knowledge, consenting to it and saying, yes, this thing is actually true. Not just an interesting idea, but something that's actually true. But going one step further, we can know about something and we can agree that, yeah, that's, that's true, I think it's right, but that might not change us. That might not affect us. We need this personal trust that follows on from it. And tomorrow I'm getting on the plane, I'm, I'm flying off to Sydney for the day. And just because I know that it's possible for planes to fly, just because I know something about the theory of flight and we, we have... Uh, air rushing over a surface and the producers lift in a perpendicular direction to that, just because I know those things. If I don't step on the plane and take off, I'm not going anywhere. If I don't step on the plane and have my personal trust in the plane's ability to fly me somewhere with a bit of help from the pilot, I won't be going anywhere. And one example from the Bible is King Agrippa. King Agrippa was a king and he's talking to Paul in Acts 26. 
And Paul outlines his testimony and says, these are the things that have happened. Everyone knows about them. These aren't done in a secret place or anything like that. And he appeals to King Agrippa and says, I know you know these things and I know you actually believe these things. But what did King Agrippa do? Did he exercise faith and repent and turn to Christ? No. He might have known it and he might have even known those things were true, the things that were being said about Jesus, but he resisted them and didn't let them transform him. So we've got the knowledge, we've got the, the understanding that that knowledge is actually true, but then a personal trust that changes us and does something. So we need to couple with this the knowledge and affirmation that depends on God for salvation, a saving faith that lasts beyond this life. Now thinking about our definition of faith, we had in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 read to us, half of that chapter, and the very first verse there, it talks about faith is a confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we don't see. Faith is a confidence in what we hope for and an assurance of what we don't see. God's expecting his people to have a confidence, an assurance, a trust and a conviction beyond what we can simply see or feel because it's a confidence in God himself. It's a confidence in God himself. He's the creator of the universe. We see it in verse 3. The very one who gives us faith to begin with. The very one who made us. And so we can have a confidence in God himself. Now, some people have taken this verse and other verses like Mark eleven twenty four, where Jesus says, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And people have taken those sort of verses and said, God, I want you to give me a gazillion dollars. Or like the song goes, Oh Lord, won't you buy, a, buy me a Mercedes Benz? Not that there's anything wrong with them, they're a pretty safe car. But God's not our personal butler or our, our checkbook. You know, such a view of God demanding I need this, this car, this status, whatever it may be, it actually makes us God and makes him our servant. As if God needs to report to us. God needs to do whatever we say. It's not biblical and it's not the reality of the apostles either. The men who uh, faithfully proclaimed the gospel and brought it out and lived with Jesus, they didn't ride around proclaiming it in their gold-rimmed chariots. But they were pursued to their death. They had an assurance, a confidence, a faith in God, a faith in Christ, in the hope of glory that was beyond death. And their faith was well placed. I remember when we were first married, we had a, we were living in Box Hill at the time and we had a whole lot of hand-me-down furniture, second-hand furniture that was really great and, and served the purpose really well. Uh, but some of it had a, a better structural integrity than others. And uh, we had one person once, he was leading his first Bible study in our house and he started rocking back on his chair a little bit rocking back and it was okay for a while. The questions are coming, people are responding and things like that. But then all of a sudden, with virtually no warning, one final rock back ends in the chair, completely falling apart underneath him. Massive crash on the floor and what was wrong? He misplaced his faith. He put his faith in a chair thinking it was going to hold his weight, thinking he's going to hold all this rocking, but it crumbled beneath him. This brings us to our second point. Who is our faith in? What is our faith in? And I came across a, a really neat 90 second little video clip 
Um, it's made by Youth Alpha that interviewed a whole bunch of people in Melbourne and asked them this question. I have faith in my family, but I really wouldn't say that I have faith in any beliefs as such. I believe in karma. I think karma is like really big. And I like believe in God, there's definitely a higher power. But whether it's actually God or Buddha or something, I'm not quite sure. There is something higher. That I don't know how to define it. I have faith in myself. I have my faith in nothing really. I know my mom. I have faith in family and friends, really, people I know. I'd agree with that. I'd say I have faith in friends. Not really much else. <laughs> Um, my faith comes from just inside me. I have faith in God. I have faith in myself. Then we're basically going to you. I can't really trust many people besides your family, probably. People on the streets a lot of the time scare me, uh, so I don't quite trust them. Generally, you trust people you know. I can trust my close friends. I can trust my family. Today, I trust my girlfriend. I trust just about everyone, which is a bit... But the ad sometimes because it gets you in a lot of trouble. Variety of answers there, isn't there? But most of those answers involve something with actually knowing someone or knowing something about them. The three main ones that seem to come up again and again were the family, friends and myself. I put my trust in my family or I have faith in my family, I have faith in my friends and I have faith or a trust in myself and my own abilities to do these sort of things. And to everyone's shock, um, politicians weren't mentioned, trust in politicians, used car salesmen weren't mentioned, to my personal shock, university professors weren't mentioned. By and large, most of these people that people are talking about, I have trust in this person, pretty good place to put our trust in. Trust in our family, those who care about us, our friends, trust in ourselves, believing in ourselves. But think about those things for a moment. Let's dig into those things for a moment. For ourselves, who of us is perfect? Who of us is without sin? Let's just take one little area. The Bible says, who can control their tongue? And I'm not just talking about speaking out in anger and, uh, and cursing someone or something like that, but think about all the different ways. The gossip, the slander, the envy, all these things that come out of our mouths. And that's just one area of our lives. We can't really fully trust ourselves because we know that we're sinners. We know we fall short of God's glory and we know we disobey him. What about the family and friends that they were talking about there? In 2009, the FBI did a study and they looked at all the murders across the country. Almost 25% of the murders were committed by a family member of the victim. Um, Over 50%, 53 53.8% were committed by people the victim knew. They were acquaintances or friends. Now, I don't want you to become paranoid about your families and your friends and and be depressed about yourself. But what we're really pointing out here is that people are imperfect. It shouldn't be news to us, we know it. It's been our experience our whole lives through. And so, we can't put all our trust, our faith, our belief in people. It's a recipe for disappointment and disaster, both in this life but also in the life to come. Putting all our trust in ourselves or more widely in our possessions, our money, our talents, our houses, our shares, whatever it is, is highly dangerous. 
These things can be over in an instant. Think about it. A downturn in the economy, an election you weren't expecting, a Brexit, termites eating away the foundations of your house, sickness, whatever it may be, these things don't last forever. And although we, we might sometimes think we'll last forever, the reality is we know we won't. Putting our faith, putting our trust and our security in things of this world, in our friends, our family, our possessions, whatever it may be, are a lot like the idols that we might scoff at in the Old Testament. How could people worship that stone, that piece of gold, that piece of copper, whatever it may be? They're dumb idols, they obviously don't do anything. And yet, our money, our our friends, our family, all these things can be over just as quickly, just in an instant. These things fade and try as we might, will fade eventually as well. There'll be someone in this room, um, assuming the Lord tarries long enough, that will live long enough to see everyone else die. That's the reality and it's always been the reality. Let me tell you a story about a, a T-shirt I have. A T-shirt I'd like to say was a present from someone else, but that would be untrue. I did buy this T-shirt for myself. And a blazoned across the front, it says, Trust me, I'm an engineer. Don't read too much into it. Um, what does it mean? I guess there's a bit of notoriety about having the knack and being able to solve all sorts of technical problems. Uh, it's when Luke says, uh, he brings me something, he's broken. Daddy, fix, daddy, fix. But think about this compared to Jesus. I can fix a few technical things. Jesus, the master engineer, creates the whole universe in six days. The one that's fully God and fully man, and from our passage in 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12, we're told this. And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. How do we get this life? How do we get this eternal life? It comes through faith. And not faith as in some sort of an abstract concept or or just having the concept of faith. Let me read that passage again and look out for the word Son. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's not an abstract concept. This faith is in Jesus. This faith is in the Son and that's what brings us life. In Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, Paul tells us, by grace you've been saved through faith. This not of yourselves, It's the gift of God, not of work so that no one can boast. God responds to our disobedience, our rebellion, our wanting to make us the centre of things by giving us Jesus and enabling us to place our faith and trust in him. It's this Jesus that's the always faithful one, the always faithful one that the the Marine might want to become and aspire to. It's this Jesus who's the all-powerful one, the all-knowing one and the rightful king. But at the same time, it's this Jesus who becomes the servant of all, the servant who lays down his life for those rebelling against him. It's this Jesus that on the boat, tossed in the ocean, when the disciples are saying, we're going to drown, Lord, he says, you of little faith, don't you know who you're in the boat with? 
the one who not only made the ocean, the one who made the universe? Is this Jesus that praises those that come to him showing faith, who he heals, who he makes whole, who he forgives? After all, he made us. Trust in Jesus is our only hope. The mere presence of faith or a faith isn't enough. It needs to be in Jesus. It needs to be in him. It needs to be in the right thing, the right person. It needs to be in Christ alone. So, having investigated what faith is and having investigated who this faith needs to be in, let's turn to our third point, why? And in George Michael's lyrics, although about something entirely different, why have we got to have it? Why is it important? In our passage in Hebrews 11, in verse 6 we're told, without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must first believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Without faith it's impossible to please God. God's not looking for a bunch of academics who follow in theory saying, oh yes, God, what a pleasant thought, interesting concept. I guess we'll go along with that. Good theory. He wants people to put their trust in him. That's what faith's all about. A real trust, a real faith, a personal trust, both for this life and beyond. In our Hebrews 11 passage, it's sometimes called the hall of faith because we see all these faithful saints again and again, person after person, who's commended on what they've done for God, commended on their faith. And what things do these people have in common? One is they're commended on their faith. They trusted God whatever the situation was, however God had called them to serve them. But the other interesting thing was they're all in the Old Testament as well. This concept of faith, this idea of trusting God, is not some new invention that Jesus made up or the disciples made up or that the church made up. This has always been the way to please God. A faith, a trust in him has always been the way to please God. Trusting in him. This is because trust, faith, at its core is paramount for all relationships. How can a husband and wife live if they don't trust each other? How can a a, a child listen to their parents if they don't actually trust their parents, that their parents love them and care for them? And likewise, How can we please God? How can we turn to God if we don't trust him? In Hebrews 11, one figure in this whole passage stands out more than any others, partly because he takes up a core of the the chapter. But this person is Abraham. He's sometimes referred to as the father of faith. Why? Because he trusts God again and again and again through tests and trials, through what seems impossible, what seems difficult, what seems inconvenient, uncomfortable, he trusts God. And the book of Hebrews here, and along within Genesis, we see a whole bunch of ways that Abraham has been tested and trusts God. God called Abraham out of his country into a new land. Go where I tell you. What does Abraham do? He does. God promised his descendants to be as the stars of heaven, as numerous as the stars of heaven. That's a lot. How many kids does Abraham have? Zero. And God keeps his promise up until he's well beyond and his wife's well beyond the age of bearing children. Zero kids. God fulfills on his promise still. Abraham believes God. 
God promised that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him, through his descendants. Has God fulfilled that? Ultimately through Christ. Christ, a descendant of Abraham. But there's one watershed moment in Abraham's life that just seems so amazing and extreme that we're left asking, what's going on there? And we pick it up in verse 17 of Hebrews 11. God asked him to offer up his own son. Offer up your own son, Isaac, as a sacrifice. We might say, hang on a sec, what's going on? How could God ask such a thing? How could God say, give me your son? How cruel. But this is precisely where Abraham's faith shines through. Abraham knows God's promise. He sees God's promise. What were they? There was this land that God was going to give him. There was his descendants that God was going to give him and all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. The descendant was Isaac. God was going to keep his promise and Abraham believed that. Abraham was saying, God's got this promise to me and we see in Hebrews 11 verse 19, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Abraham was saying, God has promised these descendants, as numerous as the stars of heaven, through Isaac. If God wants me to do this, if God wants me to sacrifice my son, he'll raise him back from the dead. That's how big his faith was. Now, what happened? Well, we read in Genesis that God stepped in, he intervened and stopped Abraham killing his son and provided a a ram, a, a substitute for that sacrifice. Now, this was a test. God never fully intended Abraham to kill his son. He was always going to step in. It was a test of Abraham's faith. And Abraham passed. He believed God's promise. He believed God's promise of this inheritance and and all the peoples of the earth to be blessed through him. Yet, it's a bit of a foretaste, isn't it? Many years later, a different father with a different son would climb a mountain That son would go to their death, death on the cross. And that time, God wouldn't say stop. God wouldn't withhold that that sentence of death. And that wasn't on Isaac. That was on God's own son. That was on Jesus. But wait a sec, all the promises are surrounding Jesus. They're all surrounding Jesus. The promises of salvation, the promises of all these things. What does God do? Precisely what Abraham believed that was possible. Precisely what Abraham believed he could do. He raised him from the dead. All these promises came true. All these promises were always going to come true because God had promised and God is faithful. That faith wasn't to be dashed It affirmed that Jesus rose again. He beat death and brings these blessings, that original promise to Abraham, brings these blessings to the whole world. So we need to receive Christ's gift, this forgiveness, being made alive in him, as it says in the verse, him living in us, a future in heaven. We receive it, how? We receive it by faith, by trusting in him, by trusting in what he has promised. And doing so, he brings us into his kingdom. So hence we see again what the essence of faith is all about and tuning it down. Faith is a firm, a personal trust in Christ. 
And this faith brings about our salvation. We know him. We believe what he says is true and we trust him. We base our lives on it. So if you're a Christian today, if you're someone that's placed your trust in Christ, both for this life and beyond, and abandon any notion that you can somehow work your way into heaven and save yourself, continue trusting in Christ. In those dark and difficult times, in those times when the devil lies to you and says, you're worthless to God. God doesn't love you, you're just stuffed up too big this time. Use your faith like a shield. Paul says in in Ephesians 6, that use your faith like a shield. Trust in Christ in those times. Jesus went to the cross to save you. You can't stuff up bigger than that. You can't mess up bigger than what Jesus has done to save you. The other thing is, this faith isn't meant to be the world's best kept secret. God doesn't call us into the secret service of Christians or being an undercover Christian and not telling anyone else about it. It's quite the opposite. He calls us to share the gospel in season and out of season. That means when you're prepared and when you're not prepared. He calls us to do it into all the world and giving everyone an answer for our hope. Ultimately, the only real hope that this world can have is not a new Prime Minister, a new political party or or some sort of ideology or something like that. It's Christ. And in knowing that, we need to make him known. So share that faith, share Christ. And maybe you're not a Christian today, maybe you're someone that that hasn't placed your trust entirely on Christ. Let me ask you, what's in your way? What's standing in the way? There was an 18th century preacher named Jonathan Edwards. He preached many sermons, but one was very, very famous. And in that sermon he likened all sinners, all people that were, were not placing their trust in God to essentially dangling, dangling above the pit of hell. God holding them there in his mercy. And ironically, not much has changed. In our natural state, in our natural state, apart from trusting in Christ, we still shake our fists at God like rebels and say, I can do it my way. I'm better than most other people around. I'm the ruler of my own destiny. I'm in control. Until one day, just like that chair crash down, our our destiny comes crashing down as well. Think about it. If if it were true that we could work our way into heaven, if we could work our way into God's favour, what in the world did Jesus die for? If we could be good enough by ourselves, apart from Christ, Jesus' death was really a waste of time. There was no reason for him to die, no reason for him to come. And yet he still went through with it. What does that teach us? It teaches us that we can't do it ourselves. We can't work our way into heaven. We can never be good enough. But one was good enough. Jesus was good enough and he stands in our place. So if you haven't put your trust in Christ, I implore you to find out more. Talk to someone you know who's a Christian. Talk to one of the elders or pastors. Talk to a friend you know that's a Christian. It won't magically solve all your problems. It won't get you a Mercedes Benz, or probably not at least. But it will solve your biggest problem. Your biggest problem in being separated from God. Your biggest problem in laying aside that rebellion and actually seeking Christ. Your biggest problem 
for this world, but more importantly, the world to come as well. So as we conclude, what do we put our trust in? What do we put our faith in? Yourself? Money? Friends or family? One day, all these things will come up short. One day, when we need to give an account of our lives before God, they'll come up short. Our faith can only be in, if it's going to stand, it can only be in Jesus, the source, the centre of our faith. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for faith. Thank you for stepping in in human history when again and again we kept mucking things up, trying to work our way to heaven, trying to to do all these things and yet you step in and provide redemption and you call us to put our trust in you. Lord, help us to have that right response to what you have done, to have faith, to have saving faith and abiding trust and hope in what you have done. And in doing so, might we glorify and honour your name. In Jesus' name, amen.